Let's pray together. Father, we are asking this, uh, this morning, following Easter, that you help us to carry Holy Week with us, that we continue to remember your fatherly love to Jesus and his readiness to suffer on our account. We thank you for his redemption, his, uh, his, the passion that filled his heart, the, um, the, the steadfast love that, that moved him to, to finish the work. And Father, we ask that you give us the strength to carry the power of the cross with us, with people we meet, with our families, people we love. Father, that, we, uh, that the love will just be so overflowing that we are willing to sacrifice for others as well. Father, we ask that you hear our prayers this morning for those who are suffering, specifically for those in Ukraine and Russia and that part of the world, um, the people who are suffering persecution for various reasons. We can only imagine what that might be like and, and just count our blessings that we are actually living in peace. Father, we ask that you, you be with the victims of war as well as the victims of illness in our own congregation, the victims of loss, um, the lonely, um, the ones who are at the, uh, feel like at the end of their rope that uh, they find you there. Father, we know that uh, you don't have to pay any attention to us, but you do, and we are thankful for that, that you look at us with unspeakable love and tenderness. Father, we ask that you give us the grace to pass that on, pass that on to others who may even uh, frustrate us, exasperate us, people that maybe we'd like to tinker in their brain a little bit, that uh, would you just help us to do, deal with grace as you have dealt with us, with grace and forgiveness and mercy. And Father, we ask that you give us wisdom to learn from every frustration, but also every joy, every encounter with beauty, every encounter with ugliness, that you give us strong hearts and willing hearts to constantly be people who reflect your image back onto the world. Father, we thank you for this new gift that you have given us, this gift of the Holy Spirit. And ask that you be with us this morning as we look into your word. It's in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask this morning that uh, before we get started here, I'm going to ask you all to take a deep breath with me. And now you can let it out. Did everybody bring their yoga mat with them this morning? <laughs> just kidding. We're not going to do yoga this morning. Uh, what we just did, we do 23,000 times a day. We breathe in uh, oxygen, carbon dioxide, a lot of nitrogen, uh, even argon, droplets. Uh, we breathe in uh, just hundreds of, of compounds every single day, a thousand times, 23,000 times a day. It's just normal. We expand and we relax. And uh, it comes in through our lungs, it passes through our nose and our lips. We do this every single day and we hardly even give it a second thought. Uh, we, we exhale, and that, that it's the breath that, that fogs up my glasses when I wear a mask. Uh, it fogs up the, the, the windows in a car that tiny fingers draw happy faces on and hearts on. That's just, it's just, we do this every single day. Well, the Bible tells us that in the beginning, God breathed. Verse 2, chapter 1. God breathed. Uh, that is the first time we see the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, right from the very start. 
God breathe. We've been doing a series on the Trinity, and I was hoping in kind of building up to, the, to Holy Week, and even though I didn't mention the word Trinity too often in, the, in Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter, I wanted to still communicate the idea that this was, the, this was a triune God. This was a God that, uh, that bought our atonement, our redemption, and our salvation. That uh, we need a robust view of the Trinity. That if we only have a weak view of Trinity, then everything falls apart. When we have a weaker view of Trinity, that means uh, Palm Sunday was really just the farce that a lot of people think it is. Uh, without the Trinity, we have uh, just... We, the crucifixion means nothing except a demonstration of perverse justice. Uh, the resurrection is just maybe a happy ending to a, a, a sad story if without the Trinity. But if you have a robust view of the Trinity, then everything changes. All of that changes. There is, there is a proclamation of the king on Palm Sunday. There is a sacrifice that is able to bring forgiveness to all humanity and redemption there is a resurrection that brings life to us and brings life to the creation and waiting for the, for the restoration of the created order. You have a view of the Trinity and all these things change together. <clears throat> well, now we are approaching after Easter. We are entering Easter season. How about that for creativity? Uh, that's what it's called, Easter season. And we work toward, we're moving toward Pentecost Sunday. And so I was going to take these other weeks now to, do, to talk about a little bit about the, probably the most forgotten person of the Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit. And I think he's forgotten because um, we don't really understand him very well. We don't really see him. It's kind of a mixed bag. There's no categories that we can put him in. There's, it's just sort of vague. And, and that's, um, it's so vague that it's why I'm calling this intentional ambiguity. What we have about the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures is so ambiguous, it's so vague and so a little bit, uh, a little bit opaque that it's just ambiguous. It's, it's, we're not really sure, but I think this is all intentional because it's beyond ex explanation. He is beyond understanding the intentional ambiguity. Uh, we have the Bible then begins to use metaphors to describe the Holy Spirit. He's, uh, the, we've talked about the Spirit is like breath. God breathe in and out. Job says the life of God is the breath in his nostrils. I mean, from the very beginning we see this. It's, uh, his, his breath is the one that, that uh, hovers over the waters. His breath parted the sea at the Exodus. His breath uh, uh, caused bones to come alive in, in Ezekiel. Uh, his breath uh, inspired a book that we have. His breath does all of these things. His breath is... is uh, uh, nourishes us, it animates us, it, it sustains us, it speaks to us. It's this breath of breathing. It's everywhere in the air around us. So pay attention. It's everywhere. He is everywhere. The Spirit, he says, is like fire. And it's, it's described as like fire, like the, like the polite little flames we have in our candles here on the table. But it's also, those of us in the Northwest know that fire can rage through a forest and can be uh, terrifying. Uh, it's, it can be, lose control. It's a fire, something that, that provides heat and light. Uh, it can be in embers. It can be, um, there's no really set form or, or figure of a flame. It's just, it's wild. It can consume, it can destroy, but it can also create. Uh, 
And Paul tells us to never quench the Holy Spirit. It's as, it's as, as necessary as it is dangerous. So pay attention. <laughs> it's like a fire. The Spirit is like a seal or an emblem or a family crest. It's a, it's a, it tells us that, it's, that we belong to someone, that we are protected by someone. It's the idea of a, of a, sigma, of a symbol on a ring that's put into to hot wax to seal letters as they used to do. It's, it's God's ring that imprints on our soft, supple hearts his, his power and His prestige, that we belong to Him, that we have our identity in Him, that we don't take our identity from anyone else. We take our identity from Him. It's like a signet ring. It's a guarantee. It's a down payment, Paul says. This symbol, this seal, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is like a wind that it... it, it causes ships to sail. It lifts up the windsurfers on the Columbia. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it roars. It, it can bend trees and cause trees to bow. It can break. It can whittle down rocks. Uh, it, uh, it can be a cool breeze on us in a summer day when you're mowing the yard. It can inflate an, an inner tube. It can, uh, it, it can create electricity. It cannot be conquered. It cannot be contained, but it can be harnessed that we even use it to create Electricity, it blows wherever it is, Jesus says, and that uh, those born of the Spirit uh, are, you don't know what direction it's going, what direction it's coming from, and so it is with those who are born of the Spirit. It is like the wind. We, we can't contain it, contain it, we can't really see it, we can only see the effects. The Spirit is like that. So pay attention. Pay attention to what it does. The Bible says the Spirit is like a bird. The Jews had, the rabbis had, they imagined that it was like a dove. Uh, the Celtics, they, had, they imagined the spirit like a wild goose. I don't know why, but they do. Uh, I, I went to this church once in Minneapolis, and it was really interesting. They only used in-house art in their church, which is, I think is pretty cool. And hanging from the roof was this big paper mache goose. And I asked the pastor, what's the deal with the goose? <laughs> and he goes, well, that's what the Celtics, that's how they describe the Holy Spirit as a wild goose, I guess. So it is like, it is like this bird. Uh, it can be a soaring eagle. It can be just as common as a pigeon and just as astonishing as an eagle on wings. The psalmist talk about, about living in the shadow of the wings. Uh, the psalmist also talks about, uh, and Jesus does too, about a, a, a mother hen gathering the chicks under her wings. The psalmist also talks about singing because you are my help, he says. I, I, I am content to sing under your wings. It is like a bird. So look up and pay attention. And the spirit is like a womb. A womb that, that hovered over Mary's womb. But it's also the womb that causes and, and, and promotes and, provo and provokes a new birth. For us to be born again. And unfortunately that phrase has become so cliched and attached to so many wrong meanings to that word, unfortunately. But it's still a beautiful metaphor that the Holy Spirit births us anew. Where we get a new perspective and we, and we, get, 
at this moment of being born again, we, we have to get adjusted, like our, our eyes have to get adjusted to the light that we see. Uh, we, we get new gifts, and we also give new gifts. And it's all, all this, this new, new thing. We get to see miracles that amaze us and see all kinds of things if we pay attention. The Holy Spirit is just beyond explanation. It is ambiguous, but I believe it is an intentional ambiguous ambiguity. The Holy Spirit appears in the Old Testament. The word for, for the Hebrew word for, for spirit in the Old Testament is ruach. And it can mean wind, it can mean breeze, it can mean breath, it can be uh, spirit, it can be spirit with a small s or spirit with a capital S. It has all kinds of different means. It, it occurs 378 times in the Old Testament. That's more than the Sabbath, that's more than the word Torah, that's more than chesed, the, the steadfast love, that's more than mercy, that's even more than covenant. It saturates the Old Testament. And it's equal in the New Testament. Pneuma is the word in the New Testament. And it occurs 379 times. And it too is wind and breath or air or, or uh, the immaterial part of a human being, or even the personality of a human being, or, or the mind of a human being, the mindset of a human being. It just has a variety of meanings. And, and, it's, and I think that's part of the reason why it's so ambiguous. We just don't know. You can see in the Exodus where, where you see a, the word translated as wind, you see it translated as breath, and you see it translated as spirit, but it's all the same word. And it all comes from God. So what is it? What is it? But it's beyond all that. It's ambiguous. It's beyond the categories. And part of the problem is the modern, the modern Christian church, especially in the West, especially post-enlightenment, that's what I'm talking about, post-enlightenment, we, we make three mistakes. One, of it, one mistake is we like to slice and dice. We like to divide everything up in, in neat categories. And we got to put things in this category. If, you're, if, you go, if you were to go to a seminary or, or Bible college, you have to take this, these long courses called systematic theology where they divide all the theology up into categories. Soteriology about salvation. Eschatology about end times. Angelology about angels. Demonology about demons. I mean, everything is divided up in their categories. We love to do that. Put everything in their neat and okay, divvy them all up. Put everything nice and neat in their, in their nice categories. And... And that's, that's, um, that's nice and neat because we like, we like that. We like to slice and dice. Uh, we talk about uh, when, when is the person spirit-filled? Or what does he do when he's spirit-filled? Uh, when does the spirit come? When does the spirit enter in you? When, did you? when are you filled with the spirit? When did it come at Pentecost? Or did it come in the Old Testament? And the Bible doesn't do that. We like those, those categories. The other, the other reason... Oh, one other thing I was going to mention, that you'll hear sometimes theologians talk about the, the Spirit in the Old Testament and the Spirit in the New Testament. The Spirit in the Old Testament was intermittent, but the Spirit in the New Testament is permanent. The Spirit in the Old Testament is a power. The Spirit in the New Testament is a person. That's not true. It's just kind of all there. You know, we have to take the whole picture here. He is just as permanent in the Old Testament from Genesis 1 as he is in Revelation. The other problem we have is that we like the sparkly and the dangly. We like the spectacular. We see the Holy Spirit as only doing special kinds of things at special moments. 
We like to see the miracles. We like to see the healings. We like to see the tongues. All that stuff. We like the sparkle and the dangly. And think about it. If, if, it um, if the Corinthians had not messed up speaking in tongues, we would probably not know anything about it. I mean, Paul addresses speaking in tongues because the Corinthians had messed it up. They had kind of taken it out of whack. They had, focused, they, had, they had focused on the spectacular, and Paul's saying, don't focus on the spectacular. And that's the only reason we know these things. And I, I believe in, in the gifts of the Spirit. What I'm talking about here is our tendency to want to see only the spectacular. And that's where the only spirit, that's the only time the Holy Spirit moves. That's the only time we see the Holy Spirit. But I'm, I, as I get older, I, I feel like, maybe it's just because I got older, that I feel like the Holy Spirit is, is in the older places, in the quieter places as well. And that there, it's there. I, I think we ought to be careful. When I hear somebody talk about needing the firecrackers and yet being blind to the injustices around them, I think that sounds very adolescent. Again, maybe I'm just being a snobby old guy. But the Holy Spirit is found in those places just as well. And the third problem that we have is as Christians, we tend to think that the Holy Spirit is only in us, only here. And outside the church, outside of Christians, it's all dark. It's all dark. And it's only in us. And I think maybe because we're afraid we're going to lose our uniqueness. Or maybe it's because well, we can convince ourselves that other people out there are in the dark or in the dirt. I can feel better about myself. And we can feel better about ourselves. And so they're all lost in the dark. But the Holy Spirit is not limited. He is everywhere. I think just to, and, I, and I'm not saying that as some modern, postmodern person. You just, it just takes a careful reading of the scriptures to see the Holy Spirit doing all kinds of things, doing some strange things with strange people. He's doing, he, 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 he comes upon artisans like Bezalel and Oliaf to, to create the, the tabernacle. He causes people to, to prophesy that you would never think were prophets. He predicts. He comforts. He is all over the thing, all over the place. Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. He talked about the Holy Spirit with the Samaritan woman, with Nicodemus. After the resurrection, he breathed the Holy Spirit on the disciples. We cannot put it in categories. We cannot divvy it up in categories. And we would not do that with anyone else. We would not do that with anyone we wouldn't do that to the people we love. The, the woman I'm living with now, I, well, I've lived with her for 36 years. I didn't even know just right now. <laughs> I've changed. The woman I live with now is <laughs> the woman I've lived with for 36 years. I would, I would insult her if I said, oh, wow, that was the Holy Spirit just then. Or that was your spirit. Or were you just breathing? Or is there just a, a nice breeze around you or something? That would be ridiculous. But it's all coming together. It's whole. It's her together is the Holy Spirit. And I think as she has gotten older, those two things have meld together, the Holy Spirit and her spirit. 
where we don't see those edges anymore as much. And I come from the holiness tradition, the Methodist tradition, and we use the word a lot, sanctification. And that's what that means, that this holiness, the, the Holy Spirit and our spirit are starting to meld together. We don't see the edges anymore. Peter calls it theosis. We take on the very nature of God. And so when I see Sue doing something, I don't say, oh, that's of the Holy Spirit. No, it's when she paints, when she quilts, when she's planting herbs, when she's doing any number of a million things a day, I can't distinguish the Holy Spirit from her spirit. Those things start to meld together. We can't put it in categories. We can't start divvying him up, dividing him up like that. He is beyond our thoughts, and he melds with us. So let's bring us back to Acts chapter 1, the passage that Ronnie read this morning. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus, God had been revealed in Jesus the person. In his work on the cross, in his resurrection, his teaching, his life, we know what God is like, we can see what God is like through the person of Jesus. Well, now we get to Acts, and God, it's just like God is now restless. And we see the Holy Spirit moving through the world. And he starts speaking through the apostles. And it's a different, a different approach here. And I think what Acts does is start to set the church on a trajectory. Uh, there are a lot of churches who want to repeat exactly what happened in, in Acts. And that's admirable. But I really don't think that's the purpose. I think what we see in the book of Acts is, is God setting the Holy Spirit, setting the church on a trajectory, the flight path that we're supposed to take. And it begins with, with Luke. Luke wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And he addresses it to the same person, Theophilus. And Luke starts to address the same themes that he did in his first book, the Gospel of Luke. He talks about the ascension, the resurrection, the kingdom of God, and now he is really talking about the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be talking about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is launching the church into this flight path, into this trajectory. And it has to do with the people of Israel who are the people of God. And how now they are going to be calling another people's, the Gentiles, into a new thing, a new humanity. Where these two groups who have no business being together are now together. These two groups who really don't want anything to do with each other are now together. Now, Israel has got to call Gentiles to with them. And they're thinking, Gentiles, they're the folks who hurt us. They're the folks who enslaved us, captured us, and even now has their boot on our throat. And you want us to be one person with them. And God is saying, yeah, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is creating this new humanity of people who would never be together any other way. And they are to live together in community, not just work together shoulder to shoulder. We come to church and sit next to each other in church and then go off and do our thing. We are actually one people. And we are to be in one community. And this has got to be really tough for Israel. It's got to be tough for the Gentiles too. But it's got to be really tough for Israel. 
Because I'm sure they're thinking, what, are we going to be assimilated? We're going to be eradicated because we're going to be assimilated into that people? Is that what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the land? What's going to happen to the promises? Our responsibility to, to promote and, and to, to uh, preach Yahweh as the one true God. What's going to happen to all that? That's got to be what going into their mind right now. You've got to remember that these new disciples, they're, they're a diaspora. They are refugees. They're, they don't, their home is in, their citizenship is in heaven, and they have no place here on earth to say they can complete control of. They're a, they're a, they're a minority here. And not only that, they've got to learn how to navigate through this whole empire kind of thing of these people who have wanted to stomp them out, and they've got to live through that. And so what do they do? They dedicate themselves to studying the Scriptures and prayer. Studying the Scriptures and prayer, and things start to become clarified of what God is doing. And Jesus appears to them, and, and they ask Jesus, says, well, is this the time when Israel's going to be restored to their kingdom? And what they're asking is, is this, going to, is this the time when the world gets turned upside down? Is this the time when Israel takes its place and it has the authority, it has the power? And it's easy, and when Jesus responds, he says, I want you to go back to Jerusalem. I want you to stay in Jerusalem and wait there. And when the Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So what the disciples are asking for, is this when we're going to get power? And it's easy to misunderstand Jesus' answer and says, no, just go back to Jerusalem and, and wait for me there. You know, it's, it's easy to misunderstand that. But what he is saying is not a no. He is saying a yes. It's just not going to look like what you think it looks like. Yeah, you're going to receive power. But you're not going to receive power over people. You're going to receive power for people. Big difference. And this humanity, this new humanity will be formed. This is the trajectory. Now, along this ideal line of, of living together, we're all happy, one big happy family and one, one strand through Acts. Well, there's another strand through Acts that runs parallel, and that's difficulty and conflict. And we see the conflict running through both of those. That the Gentiles, they, they don't trust the Gentiles. You know, what about our traditions? Are we going to be assimilated? And they think we're going to be destroyed, but that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that our stories will meld together. That there is a weaving of our stories. There is a redirection of our stories. Not one disappearing. I carry my story, my hopes, my disappointments, my dreams, my experiences, but I also carry your story. I carry it with me. I carry your background with me. That's what he's talking about here. There's a melding of the stories, and that's true. The story of Abraham is now our story. The story of David is now our story. The story of Isaiah is now our story. And they meld together, they weave together into a new trajectory. We have new humanity in a new way with the differences that God created and God intended, and instead of criticizing, instead of attacking for the differences, we celebrate them. It's wonderful. Paul talks about this very clearly, that there's all these differences, 
And this is all a great thing. This is what God intended. This is how God intended. My point in this is this trajectory of the Holy Spirit is by the same Ruah that we see in Genesis 1 hovering over the waters. This is the same Spirit that we see protecting the psalmist. This is the same Spirit we see inspiring Bezalel in the tabernacle. This is the same Spirit, and now he is doing this new thing, this new trajectory. So that's what we're going to be doing the next few weeks. And uh, we will be looking at what it means to be, to live in the Spirit in the next few weeks. But before we finish, I do have some applications for us today, this morning. The Ruah is the breath. It's how we breathe. We started off breathing. This deliberate ambiguity. So what does it mean? What do people look like? People who know how to breathe. People who are living in the Spirit. People who know how to breathe are people of virtue. These are people with, out of virtue who know how to live, who know how to live into the miracle of life every single day. People who know how to breathe are people who have a hunger to know Jesus. These people really want to know Jesus and they really want to love Jesus and they have a hunger to know him. And you see that in the New Testament. You see that in the New Testament, how the disciples and and, and Paul, they all kind of go back to the Old Testament and they say, let's reevaluate this this Messiah thing and let's see how this, this thread comes all the way through the Old Testament to the New Testament. Let's see how this works. I've heard people, I've heard, uh, I used to have this friend who's an atheist, and he used to tell me, he says, Jesus didn't start Christianity, Paul did. If it wasn't for Paul, there would be no Christianity. He's the one, he's really the founder of Christianity. Well, he obviously hasn't read Paul. Because if you read Paul, I, I just challenge you to read the first chapter of each of his letters, and you will see everything focuses on Jesus. Paul is completely Christocentric. Everything centers on him. Paul would be horrified to hear such a thing. It is a hunger to know Jesus. People who know how to breathe are people who are willing to live in community. The Spirit helps us transcend our individualism to live in community. It's not an either or, it's a both and. That he saves and he, and he speaks and he, and he deals and he, and he sanctifies individuals, but these people are willing to live in community with other believers. And we put up with each other. And, and I know, you know, there'll be differences of opinions and you go, how can you, how can you be around, you know, how can you stay there with all these different opinions? Well, guess what? I think God is teaching us how to live with people with different opinions and different perspectives. And how to, do, how to love in spite of that. And finally, people who know how to breathe are people who are committed to the coming kingdom of God. Or as he says in the Lord's Prayer, that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are the people who know how to breathe. If we want to be true Pentecost people, if we want to be true Pentecostals, then we need to recognize that our young men and young women will dream dreams and people will prophesy and old men will see visions 
as it fulfills the, the, the prophecy of Joel. That we will see, we will hear from each other what God is doing. And when people speak prophetically, we will pay attention. That's what it means to be a true Pentecostal. That we are committed to the coming of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. We're going to ask you guys to come on up. Father, we thank you for recording the experience of Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. Just the whole scriptures. We thank you for that. Father, I pray that our church, this congregation, will bear the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.